Hi everyone, Cam Maxwell here. Uh, the recording on the sermon on Psalm 8 just missed the reading of the psalm and then the first minute or two of the sermon. So uh, let me read Psalm 8 and uh, give you a brief introduction and the next audio file will pick up the rest. This is Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I began the sermon by saying that I really love this psalm because it deals with one of the most important questions there is, what it means to be human. I think Psalm 8 gives a really clear picture of what it means to be human, which is which is brilliant because all around us there's great confusion about this. Unfortunately, in some of the worst cases where people hold to the idea that the physical universe is all there is, very often I think despair follows as the kind of realisation of what that means sets in. The next auto fire will pick it up from there. Bear, uh, emptiness. When they consider that, well, we're just physical matter, we're basically just animals, maybe animals with needs, but just animals, something special about being humans, life is an accident, doesn't have any meaning, one day we'll be dead, that's kind of it. It's kind of pretty bleak, isn't it? And how do you live if that's your view of humanity? Like, how do you live without knowing where we're supposed to head? How do you have hope? How do you make decisions about what is right and wrong when you're not even sure what it means to be human? Psalm 8, I think, speaks into a very important question for us. and has profound and, I think, a simple answer for us. What is mankind's? What does it mean to be human? Well, very simply, we are created. We are created. Um, that's the claim here in Psalm 8. It's the claim of the Bible. And uh, if, if you're visiting us today, if you're here for the first time, or uh, you're not someone who's a follower of Jesus, or perhaps you just sort of see the world very differently to how Psalm 8 paints it, uh, firstly, really big welcome to you. It's great you're with us this morning, and uh, we hope uh, you have a great morning. I guess as we look at this Psalm together, if that's you, can I just invite you to uh, perhaps consider... Does looking at the, at the world the way the psalmist does, David does, does looking at the world like David does, does it make some sense? That's a good question to consider. And perhaps on top of that, a challenge, uh, if this is new to you, is there a more satisfying answer to what it means to be human? Can you come up with a more satisfying answer to what it means to be truly human? Perhaps something you've heard or uh, something you've come to yourself. If, if you have a satisfying answer, please, I'd love, to, I'd love to hear from you. Please come and chat to me. Did you notice, though, that uh, this psalm, it's not really about us. It's not about us. Uh, it's a psalm all about God. Yeah, it'd be great to keep Psalm chapter 8 open in front of you as we look at it together. And if you have it there, you'll see it starts and finishes with a repeated verse, verse 1, verse 9, declaring how majestic God's name is throughout the earth. And then in between, every verse, uh, God is the feature, He's the subject, basically, of the verse. Verse 1, you set your glory. Verse 2, you have established a stronghold. Verse 3, we consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. Verse 4, God is mindful, God cares. Verse 5, God has made us, He has crowned us, uh, He has made us rulers. 
the focus of this psalm is not humanity, it's God. It's critical for us because understanding what it means to be human has to start and finish with understanding God. There is no way that we can work out what life is, what it's all about, where we come from, where we're heading. We can't work it out without reference to our Creator, our life giver. Have you ever sort of stopped and wondered, well, why did God give us life? Like, why did God create us? Why did He create the universe? It's a pretty big question, isn't it? Um, You think, well, He didn't need to. Like, He wasn't bored. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't unsatisfied in any way. Why did He do it? Now, it might be a bit hard for us to answer that uh, for sure, but I reckon Psalm 8 gives us a bit bit of a hint, a bit of a clue. But why did God make the universe? Well, He's majestic. Unbelievably glorious and brilliant. He's powerful. He's breathtaking. He's, he's awesome, in, a, in the, kind of the right use of that word. Now, if that's who God is, in His core, His nature, His being, well, we shouldn't be surprised if a brilliant, majestic God wants to share some of His majesty with others. He wants to let His internal goodness be created, be expressed externally. We shouldn't be surprised the God who is glorious would want to extend that, to share that glory, that majesty, and let others, let us, enjoy Him, enjoy seeing His glory, His majesty. I think that's perhaps what's going on here in Psalm 8. God created, and He is majestic and glorious. How glorious is He? Well, how big is the universe? How majestic is God? Well, how majestic are those, the galaxies that kind of just spin seemingly into a fin- infinity? The universe, in some ways, gives us a glimpse of God's majesty, of His glory. He has set His glory in the heavens. But verse 1 sort of has a bit of a jarring sort of jump to verse 2, doesn't it? You go from verse 1, sort of the majestic glory of the cosmos, verse 2, kind of the ridiculous little baby, weak, you know, little blobby things, pretty cute. To go from the cosmos to a baby is a bit of a, a, bit of a leap to make, isn't it? We see here, babies are somehow God's great display of strength and power. They are babies somehow defeat and silence God's enemies. I'll be honest with you, as I try to do all the time, I'm not really sure what verse 2 is about. Um, that is, how does an infant praise God? Like, how do babies silence God's enemies? I don't really know the answer to that, to be honest. Um, I mean, I have two sons, uh, one's about two and a half, one's about six months. Um, neither of them are particularly eloquent. Um, they do all right, but I've never, as I've changed their nappy, heard them sort of singing God's praises in a way that, oh yeah, like this guy's really silencing God's enemies. This is, this is great. I'm yet to hear them kind of give an eloquent argument that convinces the hardened atheist why God is good uh, or he exists. Like, they just don't do that. How do the noises that come out of the mouths of infants, how does that show us the majesty of God? At one level, I don't really know. Uh, my best guess is uh, their simple fact of existence testifies that there is a life giver. When you look at a baby and you consider all the sort of complex bodily systems that just work, uh, you think, well, it's quite something. Uh, maybe the idea is, as we hear a child's cry, we're supposed to be reminded that their life, they're completely helpless, but they have life because, well, there is a life giver. I could be wrong about this, uh, but I suspect um, the hardest time to be an atheist, the, the most uncomfortable moment being an atheist, having a worldview, there is no God, is perhaps holding a wriggling, giggling little child. I could be wrong. 
It's an unusual progression of thoughts, though, isn't it? Verse 1, glory of the heavens, how big and majestic. Verse 2, babies are cool. It's kind of a bit of a weird jump. But then you see the same thing in verses 3 and 4, the same pattern. You go from the massive, majestic universe to kind of this insignificant kind of blob that we seem to be. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. I suspect we've all kind of felt something of this at some point. Uh, perhaps the last time we went camping or just outside of the city limits and had a good view of a clear night sky. When you look up, you, you do feel like pretty small, don't you? You realise the universe is, is massive. At the same time, you have this weird sort of sense of privilege that you can look up. You can kind of see and be a spectator and be involved in what's happening in the universe and think these wonderful thoughts. Or perhaps you've sort of seen those videos online. Um, I was going to put one up for us this week. Uh, I haven't, because you kind of get a bit dizzy watching those videos where you start at sort of ground level and sort of zoom out. So you zoom up above the city and you keep going, eventually see the whole earth. You keep zooming out, you go past the moon, keep zooming out past the planets, past the sun, and sort of into the sort of the wider galaxy and beyond and beyond. It's sort of, you end up with a sort of existential vertigo as you kind of watch those kind of videos. So I encourage you to do it. I spent uh, too, too long this week doing that. Um, it was good fun. I, said, I thought instead, instead of a video, I'll give us a very quick tour of the cosmos. So I've got a few slides uh, we'll put up as we go. Uh, we start with, of course, the famous blue marble kind of picture. You look at it, there's all of, all of the Earth in one picture. You think, oh, it's not that big. Until, of course, you try to go jogging somewhere. And you realise, actually, yeah, it's, it's a pretty long way to go anywhere when you're out of breath. The Earth is very big. Uh, we know that. But then you think, well, compared to other planets, the next slide... You're kind of just a blue dot in space, aren't you? It's not, not that significant of a planet to, to look at when you sort of stand next to Jupiter. You think, whoa, that's a big planet. But then you zoom out a bit further, here's the sun. And the tiny, you can't even see it, I'm sure. There's a little tiny blue dot down the bottom there. The sun is very, very big. It's a bit of an obvious thing, perhaps. When you, you know, the sun's so powerful, it can, uh, it can basically fry an egg on your bonnet from 150 million kilometres away. Like, that's, that's a pretty impressive sun, isn't it? Except that it's not. It's kind of just an average-sized sun. There's like almost an infinite number of them. Uh, for instance, in uh, the Milky Way, uh, people are telling me, as I was you know, looking at too many things on the internet this week, uh, there are around about 400 billion stars like our own in the Milky Way. 400 billion. Now, that's just one galaxy. The Milky Way is one of many, many galaxies. Uh, I don't know how many, seemingly an infinite amount. And that isn't even a very big one. I think the next, next one we have... Tiny little dot down the bottom, that's the Milky Way. The big yellow sort of orb, that's another galaxy, uh, IC1011. Colossal. Colossal. And there's scores of them. Now, universe, very, very big. I thought I'd show you one image to show you. It's also very beautiful. Here's um, a picture taken by the Hubble uh, telescope. It's called the Pillars of Creation. Uh, it's basically some sort of cosmic dust cloud or something like that, so I don't know heaps about it. Uh, but I do know it would take a very long time, maybe a few lifetimes, to travel across one of those pillars. It's incredible, isn't it? And it does give us a bit of a sort of a sense of uh, existential vertigo. So let's just zoom back in. We've looked at the cosmos. Let's zoom back in and just think about ourselves in the place of the universe. Because when we consider that God has made it all, like we're told in this psalm, He does it with His fingers, it's no big deal. The first response is, wow, like, God is very, very big. He's majestic, his power, it's, it's off the charts, isn't it? You can't even comprehend it. 
At the same time, we are very, very small. It would seem that we are just blips, just specks of dust, just floating along in the scheme of things. We won't be here long. So what value do we have? At time and time again, cultures that have, have moved away from the claims that God is a creator, that he gives us value, time and time again, we've seen when God's removed from the equation, life loses its meaning and then life becomes cheap. We've seen atheist states in our own century, atheist states, states where human life simply is a means to an end and millions are killed when they become inconvenient. We saw in the Nazi era, uh, the horrors, many horrors, uh, one being that uh, children and adults in Nazi Germany were, if they had physical or mental disabilities, they were euthanized. It's horrific. We've seen every era, including our own, humans just don't treat each other with the dignity that we should have. The weak and the marginalized get ignored, their life is undervalued. What Psalm 8 does, though, is it doesn't conclude that we're insignificant. Yes, it draws us to think about the expanse of the universe, but it doesn't make us insignificant, it does the opposite. Even though the universe is so big and we are so small, even though we are seemingly specks, David the psalmist knows for sure God loves us. He cares for us. See, seeing the majesty of the universe shouldn't lead to despair, but awestruck wonder, like David. Like, he's considering, why? Why would this all-powerful God, why would he still love me? Why would he love little old me? Of course, the promise of the Bible is that in God's eyes, we are precious. He loves us. He made us. So I think what's brilliant about Psalm 8 is it draws us into this sense of wonder, being perplexed. Why would God care about the details of my life? Because when you think about it, it's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? He can create an entire universe, but he cares about what's happening to me today. And this sort of sense of wonder, I suspect uh, most of us, as we follow Jesus, from time to time, we kind of, I think, start losing that sort of sense of wonder and joyfully being perplexed at times. Because, you know, life just sort of marches on, doesn't it? But for me, looking at Psalm 8 this week, as I've kind of reflected on what it's all about... I've kind of started to fear that I would go through life and lose this kind of sense of wonder. Perhaps if I was to start thinking that I have God all sorted out, that I have all the answers, or perhaps thinking that, well, of course God cares for me, I'm kind of a big deal, or um, whatever it may be. It would be a tragedy, wouldn't it, is if we lost that kind of sense of, of wonder. And if we have, like, what is it that we're missing? What is it we've lost sight of if we no longer are perplexed by the majesty of God? could be that as we think about this, this glorious, majestic God, we've lost sight of the fact that He came to save us. He's the one who came to give us eternal life. Jesus, God the Son, He came to be one of us, not because He had to, it wasn't a duty He had to fulfill. He came because we are His creation, His, His dearly loved children. So Jesus came to save us and so the cross... The cross, even more than the night sky, I think the cross leads us to be joyfully and humbly perplexed. How deep the Father's love for us, as the songwriter puts it, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. 
It's extraordinary when you think about it. If you feel like you've sort of uh, maybe lost some of that sense of wonder, awestruck wonder you see in Psalm 8, it could be because we started to think that God is too small or that we are too big. Perhaps a good remedy would be to take your Bible and find a good night to go stargaze. That might be a good way to help us. But with or without stars, it's crucial, isn't it, to have time to allow ourselves to dwell on what Jesus offers tiny little people like us. He gives us new life, hope for eternity, joy of salvation, the fellowship with each other, fellowship with God, the forgiveness of sins, being transformed into His image, and so on and so on. All these wonderful gifts God has seen fit to give us. It's extraordinary. What is mankind? Well, we are created and cared for by God. That's verse 4. But then we get to verses 5 and five to 8, and it sort of fleshes out for us what humanity is. We see in these verses that we have dignity, uh, but humility. We're not animals, but we're not divine either. We're somewhere in between. So verse 5, God has made us a little lower than the angels. We are crowned with glory and honor. So look, we're not gods. We're not free to choose whatever we want, whenever we want, but we are glorious. So in the background here is Genesis chapter 1, uh, the account of God uh, creating humanity. We're told there that humans are created in God's image. Now, the idea with that is not so much that we look like God or God looks like us, but that we carry His qualities. And perhaps more so that humans are representatives of God in His creation. So of all of creation, humans are the most honoured. We have dignity. Because we're created in the image of God, each life has value and dignity. Not because of what we can do, or how intelligent we are, but because we bear God's image. So it's really important to see how this kind of works together. We're not divine, God still rules over us, He's God, we're not, but we're also not animals. We rule over them is what we see here, because God made us to be rulers. Verse 6, to rule over His work. Here we're told, everything is under our feet, flocks and herds, animals of the wild, birds of the sky and fish in the sea, everything, it would seem, is under our control. We also see that the dignity that comes from God sets us apart from the animals. We're over them. Now, of course, it would seem in our world many people would say that, well, look, we are just animals. We're sophisticated animals, maybe, but uh, we have the same DNA, as we heard, 50% the same DNA as a banana. Uh, We're basically just elaborate animals. Again, if that were so, how could you argue that human life has any significant value? You might emotionally feel that, if that's your belief. But if we are simply animals, well, should we be surprised if that's how we end up treating each other? It's a pretty bleak view of the world, I think. A bleak view of humanity. And I don't think logically there's a way to argue uh, that we should have dignity or value if we are simply animals. Instead, if God gives us dignity, we know we are above, that we are separate from animals. So human rights, uh, something we all love, human rights, it stems from the idea that we do have dignity. Christians have been the ones throughout history who have championed that cause better than anyone, I think. Trying to treat all humans as if their life is valuable. They might be our enemies, but their life is valuable. They might be someone who is incapacitated or uh, severely disabled, and yet their life has great value, as much dignity as anyone else. 
Christians have been the one who have fought for those who don't have the strength to fight for themselves. Because we're not animals. We are crowned with glory and honour by a majestic God who made the universe. Have you noticed, though, as we kind of read through this psalm, it does feel like something's not quite right. The description that we've just read about humans ruling over all of creation, we're told everything is under our feet, like as if we were in complete control of everything. Like, is that how you feel about the world? Like, I don't think we really experience that, do we? Like, we do make a mess of looking after the world we live in. We don't really rule it very well. And we don't have anything under our control, really. Like, plenty of animals will eat us. Uh, Not to mention things like uh, viruses or bacteria. Like, we just can't control creation, really. So there's a tension in this psalm. We're told one thing, that, uh, yeah, we have control, we rule uh, creation, but at the same time we feel, well, we don't really, do we? There's a tension here. What's going on, I think, is that in the background of the whole Bible, right after creation, is the fall, uh, the entrance of sin into God's universe. Uh, When sin entered the world, what happened was those who were made in God's image rejected the one who gave them that image. So God's image still remains in humanity, even though we've sinned, but it's distorted, it's clouded, it's not a great image of God anymore, not like it was, it's not perfect. None of us are able to reflect or represent God as we should, because each of us are profoundly affected by sin. What that means is our humanity is distorted. None of us, if you think about it, are perfectly human. It's a bit strange. If you think about it, a glory that we're crowned with, it's, it's clouded, it's distorted, it's not that glorious. The rule that we're supposed to have over creation, we've kind of mucked it up, it's broken, it doesn't work like it should. And the dignity that we're supposed to have and and treat each each other with is clouded and often denied. But here's the great thing about Psalm 8. It doesn't sort of just finish with that strange tension. And what we see as we get to the New Testament is that there is new light shed on this psalm as we get to Jesus. Because we see in the New Testament that Psalm 8 is actually all about Him. See, if you think about it, we were made in God's image, we were made uh, to be like God, but Adam and all who follow like him, that image has been distorted. What Jesus does is he entered into humanity, but not affected by sin. If you've ever, ever wondered, as we sometimes say creeds here, why we make a big deal about Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, uh, one of the reasons that matters so much is that it tells us, as the Bible does, that Jesus was not of the line of Adam in the same way that we are. It's crucial because it means that Jesus isn't born with a broken humanity. Jesus was born with the true image of God being reflected. Which is to say, Jesus is the most human human who has ever lived, fully human. He truly reflects God's image as we were supposed to. Now, that's critical because it means if we want to know the answer, what does it mean to be human? Very simply, we look at Jesus, the most human human ever. We look at how he lived, how he treats people. We look at how he relates to God the Father, the things he values, the things he loves. Jesus shows us what it means to be truly human. Now, what I thought I might do is to have a quick look at two parts of the New Testament where Jesus sheds extra light on Psalm 8. So, I'll get you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. In the blue Bibles on the pew, it'll be on page 988. That's Matthew 21, page 988. 
Matthew 21, page 988. We'll pick it up around about verse 14. Verse 14. Matthew 21, verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him, that's Jesus, at the temple, and he healed them. Here he is, he's restoring dignity, human value. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read Psalm 8? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Now, here's the bit I said earlier. I didn't really know what it was about, verse 2 of Psalm 8. Turns out Jesus knows what it's about. It's about him. As his children testify that he is the son of David, they're identifying who he really is. He's the true human. He has come to restore our dignity, to give us our value, to restore our broken humanity. But most of all, he's come to save us. So in Psalm Psalm 8, we get this um, idea that the children will silence the adversary. So that's God's way of doing his work. He takes what looks weak, what looks insignificant, children, to speak the truth that makes the experts look foolish. That's what happens here. So what does it mean to be human? Well, for us, it means to be with Jesus, to follow him, and by his spirit, to be made more and more like him day by day. Bit by bit, we become fully human again. Our dignity, our image is restored. Now, please turn with me now, our final one, to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, on your Bibles, will be on page 1205, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, page 1205. We'll pick it up at verse 5. Hebrews 2, verse 5. It's not angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. That's kind of what you say when you can't remember the chapter or verse number. There is a place, it's written. Uh, Here he he quotes Psalm 8. Here we go. What is mankind that you're mindful of him? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. There's that kind of tension we talked about in Psalm 8. We we don't have that complete control yet. But, but verse 9, but we do see Jesus. And here's Psalm 8, paraphrase again, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death. And so by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It's wonderful, isn't it? Uh, skip down to verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For, it, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's a brilliant passage, and I was uh, pretty tempted to kind of preach a sort of sermon part two uh, on the back of this. Don't worry, I'm not. Um, I just want to say, if you want proof, that humans have dignity, that we are dearly loved and cherished by God, 
It's the incarnation of Jesus, the moment where God became man, he took on flesh. I think that proves that humanity, in God's eyes, is greatly valued. It's cherished. Now, if nothing else this morning about Psalm 8 has kind of perplexed you and made you wonder, perhaps the incarnation will do it. God became man. It's extraordinary. It's mind-boggling. What's even more mind-boggling, perhaps, is why he did it at all. Jesus, at great cost to himself, came to restore our humanity. He came to save us from eternal death, the consequence of sin. And he gave us hope for eternity that we will be with him and we will be like him. It's wonderful. I hope this morning, as we've looked at Psalm 8, uh, you've been stirred to wonder, perhaps to be awestruck and joyfully perplexed as we've kind of touched on you know, the size of the universe, the power of God and his majesty, and how ridiculous it is this mighty, mighty, powerful God would care for us. It's amazing stuff, and I hope uh, Psalm 8 will help us guard our hearts from ever assuming that God is small and that we are big. I hope it guards our minds from thinking that we have God all sorted out, it's all pretty neat. And I hope it will help us just marvel and with awestruck wonder, keep looking at Jesus our Saviour. Let's pray. O Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Heavenly Father, we ask for those of us who might be feeling like we've lost some of that wonder and awe at your majesty, we ask that in your kindness you would uh, just lead us to the cross and blow us away again by uh, the extent of your love for us such small creatures. Please keep growing in all of us uh, a great joy and a sense of wonder as we keep uh, learning about this universe you have made, as we keep dwelling on the depths of your love for us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.